The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data. Stay tuned for their message on cloud security. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. Francis is out today. I'm your host, Marjorie Sensor. The Defense Department is beginning to use the Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure Cloud contract. This month, the Pentagon issued Jedi winner Microsoft a $1 million task order for training. Nexia reports Amazon Web Services wants an injunction to stop work on the contract. Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General John Hyten, says he plans to improve the Defense Department's requirements processes. He says the current approach is a, quote, nightmare across the board. Federal News Network reports Hyten says a faster requirements process will help DOD produce more up-to-date software. The Space Development Agency will become part of the Space Force in October 2022. SDA Director Derek Tournier says the timeline will allow the agency to have satellites working. Defense News reports the first several dozen satellites will be ready to launch shortly before the agency becomes part of the Space Force. The President's budget request for 2021 is scheduled to be released next month. The anticipated $740 billion total defense budget will be only slightly above this year's budget. Andrew Hunter is a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thanks for joining me. Glad to be here. What are you expecting in the um, President's budget, which is typically just the sort of the opening offer, right? It's the opening offer, and as you said, this is the first time during the Trump administration's tenure where the budget is essentially flat. It's, uh, in fact, the Department of Defense will lose buying power in inflation-adjusted terms. So uh, it's going to be the first time that they'll have to make what I would consider painful trade-offs between the big priorities of force structure, readiness, and modernization that heretofore they've been able to uh, really get most of what they want across all three fronts. And where do you expect the, those kind of hard choices to be made? Um, are you looking at, you know, potentially programs being canceled or um, other kinds of, you know, cuts? Yeah, I don't expect big program cancellations, although the caveat there may be the Air Force that has been signaling, Air Force leadership has been signaling that they may make some big changes. But I don't expect that will necessarily be programmatic cuts. They may look more towards retiring uh, existing assets in order to free up space for new program. Uh, but I do think that there could be deferrals, things that they've talked about getting underway that get uh, delayed or maybe don't make the cut. So they won't necessarily have to be canceled because they're not really going yet, uh, but they may not materialize in the way that we would have previously expected. Do you think this will take a, a tougher toll on, on any of the services? It sounds like you're watching the Air Force in particular. Well, I think all the services have unique cases and, you know, the way that uh, the budget's been put together the last several years. The services have really been in control of their own destinies. They have been able to choose their path, and uh, and so they've all they're all on very different paths, uh, and so they all have kind of unique challenges. Uh, I do think you know, of course, for the Air Force, the creation of the Space Force is uh, is going to put them in a position of trying to figure out how to reflect that in the budget and how to accommodate the priorities of the Space Force in the budget. One of the main reasons for creating the Space Force was to give space a higher priority in the budget fight. Uh, you know, I'm also very intrigued with where the Marine Corps is going because uh, General Berger, the Commandant, had put out this guidance that fundamentally sought to uh, reorient the way the Marine Corps thinks about its future missions. And that should flow down into pretty significant programmatic changes. We don't know how much of that will show up in 2021. 
and the Army's a really interesting case too. Um, you know, they, they set out, as the Army often does, to focus on force structure, uh, but they also set out with a lot of prototyping, aggressive prototyping programs to get after some of their modernization priorities where they're a bit behind the eight ball. Uh, and this is kind of the year where some of those programs are going to have to make the leap from, I think, concept and prototype to, is this a real program with real equipment that's going to be bought and fielded and put in the field? And obviously, the the you know the services and and um, larger Pentagon will put together this budget, but then Congress has a say. Um, what do you think are the priorities of this Congress? What are areas where we might see some tension? Well, I think for Congress, uh, you know, they they are highly incentivized for certain things. They are incentivized to protect force structure because force structure resides at bases, and bases are in congressional districts. They are incentivized to support existing production lines because existing production lines drive employment in congressional districts. So, uh, Congress is going to be asked by the services to essentially uh, take a break or put aside some of its traditional. Uh, priorities in support of these things in order to allow next generation systems that don't in the near term drive as much jobs uh, and maybe force structure cuts which may uh, have impacts on employment and bases and that's that's going to be a tough sell um, but Congress has been signaling that they're open to this approach that they want to see a next generation of technology emerge uh, but the proof will be in the pudding with this year's process. The other um, potential complication here of course is that it's an election year um, what effect, if any, do you, th you think that will have on this year's budget process? Well, I mean, one of the big questions, Marks, is what might have come over in this budget uh, if it weren't an election year? Uh, you know, how much can, uh, can the administration stand politically in terms of change and painful choices and trade-offs? Uh, you know, so we've read in the press that, uh, you know, maybe the, the Navy would have taken a different direction with its budget than what will actually come forward to the Congress because there was a lot of sensitivity about moving away from the 355 ship uh, goal for Navy force structure and the possibility of not refueling the Truman. Uh, and my guess is uh, we would have seen more uh, aggressive moves across all of the services if it weren't an election year. Having said that, what, what they are going to propose, and again, the Air Force has been kind of signaling the strongest to you know, batten down the hatches and hold on. Uh, you know, again, it'll probably have a bit of a rough ride in Congress. And as you say, they're going to be up for re-election too, so they're going to be thinking about those issues top of mind. Sure. The um, overseas uh, contingency operations account has been controversial in years past. What role do you think that will play in this year's kind of budget um, rollout? Well, you know, the interesting thing is that OCO was formally uh, kind of ratified in the two-year budget deal. A number was set for OCO when they made that deal. So uh, in that sense, I don't think OCO will be terribly controversial this year because it's part of the whole bu budget agreement. And in prior years, sometimes they've had agreements on other parts of the budget, but OCO was always not included. And so it was the, it was the battleground that everyone had to fight over, whether they wanted to increase it or decrease it or uh, use it as an escape valve from the budget caps. Now it's, it's in the mix. Uh, from the beginning. So I don't think it'll be as controversial, uh, but the people who dislike OCO and want to see it go away are still out there on both sides of the aisle. Uh, and so I think they'll continue to come after it. And just 30 seconds to go, um, we saw the Army uh, change its strategy, pull back on this OMFV program. Do you think that was meant to sort of get ahead of the budget? Might we see any more of that before the rollout? Well, you know, I think they're obviously responding to what happened, which is they got only one bid. Mm -hmm. uh, and apparently when they evaluated that bid, it wasn't exactly what they were looking for. Uh, so I think kudos to the Army for making a tough choice, which is to change course and to say, you know, we didn't get this quite right. We're going to start over. And there's a delay in that. And I know the Army doesn't like that delay. 
Uh, but I think uh, they, they really should be in a position to get some competing proposals that are a little more practical in terms of what it can deliver in the timeline. Uh, and so I think adjusting was the right uh, process. And I think you're right. Making that decision before the budget comes out rather than after was a very wise move. Congress does not like those sorts of last-minute changes. Thank you so much, Andrew Hunter. Great to be with you. Up next, drone strikes and keeping U.S. officials safe. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the steps the U.S. can take to defend against these attacks. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The United States sometimes turns to drones to strike down adversaries. The most recent example is Iranian General Qasim Soleimani. Here to take a look at how vulnerable the U.S. is to this type of attack and how it can improve its defenses, Lieutenant General David Barno, U.S. Army retired, and Nora Benzahel are visiting professors of strategic studies at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and contributing editors at War on the Rocks. Thanks for joining me. General, how vulnerable is the U.S. to these kinds of attacks? I think a lot more than uh, most people in America thinks, and I, and I think that applies to the uh, U.S. military and the senior levels of the U.S. government as well. We've never had a drone attack or any other targeted uh, killing of a senior U.S. official uh, overseas or in the United States, uh, certainly nothing like uh, we just uh, inflicted on Soleimani, who probably deserved that, but now this uh, opens the door for potential attacks against our senior leaders as well. And is that because of um, technological advances, you think, now other countries are potentially able to, to do this kind of attack? We certainly dominated the uh, drone strike space, and there are a number of other countries, as we note in our column, over two dozen countries have this capability now, and several have actually used it in lethal attacks uh, on their neighbors and on other groups uh, that have opposed them out there. So that capability by itself is growing around the world, but the idea that you know U.S. leaders are vulnerable and could be attacked I think that idea has to get planted in our heads, and it hasn't happened yet, thankfully, but I think it's unfortunately somewhere out there on the horizon. We better start taking it seriously. And, and Nora, in this article that you co-wrote, you all detail um, a list of, of suggestions that you think uh, steps that should be taken now. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, I think the first and foremost one is to start thinking about how we better protect our senior officials. The president and the vice president are very well protected by the Secret Service, but once you get below that, um, very few people have security details, and even those, they, t they focus on physical security. Um, there are a lot of vulnerabilities in a lot of different places, and again, the Soleimani attack just gives potential U.S. adversaries every additional incentive to continue down the path of developing those capabilities and using the ubiquitous information from smartphones, fitness trackers, all those other devices, it's not that hard to figure out where senior leaders are at any given moment. That makes them incredibly vulnerable. You talked about even simple things like photos that in front of a room with a number, that kind of thing. You think that it sounds like you think there are relatively simple changes that could be made and maybe some more complex or difficult ones as well, right? Yeah, that's an example of an obvious one, you know, because things can be targeted at specific places in specific buildings. Again, the U.S. has been able to do that for many years. Others are catching up. Others are more complicated, um, you know, in terms of the types of protection we tend to, U.S. officials tend to move in large motorcades. That makes them very identifiable, uh, so we may have to rethink that. Even things like, even in well 
well-protected areas, entries and access points, getting onto and off of bases that might be protected, even those things become very difficult. Going from a secure conference room onto an airplane, that bit of transit is usually exposed. That requires a whole new way of thinking. And, and how um, difficult or expensive, generally, do you think it would be to make you know, all of these changes, or at least the most uh, effective ones? Well, it could be incredibly expensive and incredibly difficult, but I think raising the consciousness and making all these senior leaders aware that there's a potential vulnerability out there, that, that's the first step, and we haven't even taken that step yet. So I think protecting all of your personal information, being aware that your use of social media often can be tracked to you and where you physically are located. You know, we've seen that as an issue overseas. In fact, the Defense Department now bans troops overseas on deployments from using, you know, fitness trackers because they've found that even relatively unsophisticated insurgent groups were beginning to track where Americans were based upon their fitness trackers they were wearing around when they were running on the perimeters of bases. So that awareness alone is an incredibly important first step and it should extend back here to the United States in terms of thinking about vulnerabilities as well. Yeah, they're sort of um, talking about it as a mindset change seems like um, a, a big part of it. Um, Nora, do you see that mindset changing? Do you see an awareness among some of these leaders that this is a, a real problem for them specifically? I don't think so yet because the threat hasn't materialized yet and we tend not to take things like that seriously until they materialize. Uh, but there are a lot of things that, that the government and, and in particular the military can do now not just to try to prevent these attacks um, but also to prepare for the fact that they might occur. So one of the things that the military can do is practice leadership succession at the highest levels. Usually in its military exercises whoever the commander is whether that's at the brigade level, battalion level, even up to division and corps level, uh, they very rarely get taken out in the exercise. We need to be able to practice the resiliency of the chain of command in the military uh, and also to further empower more junior leaders uh, in case their leaders uh, you know are, are targeted or killed during the conduct of operations. What has stopped that in the past? Clearly uh, so much of this is planning for the worst case scenario right? Why, why isn't that planning happening you don't think? Again because I think it's very hard to imagine uh, those people being a deliberate target of an attack. Clearly in the military people understand that anybody can be killed on the battlefield at any time. Um, but the deliberate targeting that someone might go just after a senior leader or specifically find them in order to create chaos in their unit, that's not how the military is used to thinking about things. That's not how the U.S. government is used to thinking about its most senior leaders. So again, a lot of those things are, are a mindset and you know the capabilities to conduct these kinds of targeted strikes have been around for a for a long time in the US but others are catching up really rapidly and that's the piece we don't seem to have absorbed and with just 30 seconds to go general if something like this did happen do you think then there would be really rapid change i think it would be a huge shock to the system and i think tragically that usually is the what's required to generate these kind of changes and change the mindset and begin investing more in this but i hope that uh, some of the signaling we're doing and some of the attention we're drawing to it just with this column and with the aftermath of the, the strike on Soleimani actually gets U.S. leaders to start thinking about what they can do to protect themselves. That's, that's got to start now. Thank you so much for being here. Thank, Thank you. you. Up next, using innovation to sharpen the tip of the spear. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how agencies and industry can work together. Don't forget, if you missed an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv.
The Defense Department's digital modern modernization strategy says innovation is a key element of future readiness. The Pentagon is taking steps to capitalize on innovation within commercial technology companies. Matthew Cornelius is executive director of the Alliance for Digital Innovation. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Marjorie. What are you seeing from the Pentagon in terms of trying to embrace innovation, particularly in the commercial world? Sure. Uh, I think you've seen a couple of things. One, uh, we highlight in a piece that my chairman, John Wood, from the Alliance for Digital Innovation wrote in C4ISR about the 2019 modernization strategy. Then you saw both Congress and the administration really follow up in this year's NDAA, passing a lot of provisions that really focused on commercial innovation, getting commercial software into the Pentagon, um, driving uh, reforming the business side of the Pentagon while still prioritizing warfighters and readiness going forward. What did you think were the most um, important or potentially effective parts of the NDA in terms of addressing that? Sure. Um, there were a few that we highlighted in the piece. I think Section 800 uh, on the rapid software acquisition is going to be incredibly important and my members are very excited to see how that rolls out. Um, another provision that a lot of folks haven't talked about but seems very interesting for both uh, government and industry is Section 802, which is uh, alpha contracting team. So that's a, a contracting style where you get both industry and government representatives together to create joint requirements uh, or to focus on solving real problems through acquisition versus just having the government tell industry what it wants and then industry having to figure out how to come up with some idea or develop some new capability in order to meet that standard that the government set. Obviously, the actual provisions matter, the way the government buys matter, but it also seems like there's some signaling here, too, right? Do you feel like, um, you know, your members are feeling like we're seen, we're wanted, um, you know, they're reaching out to us, that kind of thing? Yeah, I, I believe so. And you highlighted something uh, earlier in your segment with uh, Vice Chairman Hyten talking about uh, the software nightmare uh, with the Joint Chiefs of Staff, right? Uh, most of the time, folks in the Pentagon or elsewhere in the government don't come out and talk so openly about issues. That is essentially a, a red light flashing saying, industry, help us, right? And I think something when, when you hear someone like General Hyten say, 50% solution should be good enough for an awful lot of what we do at DOD, um, the, government, uh, the government sometimes doesn't understand that industry is already producing 80 and 90% solutions that meet a lot of their needs. And so it's that last 10% where the government adds on new special requirements or, or particular things that only the government wants that delays innovation, delays the acquisition process, and, and frankly gets a lot of uh, younger, smaller companies that really want to come in and help in the public sector provide capabilities to the DOD. It pushes them away versus wanting to come in and offer their products and services. What are the other issues you think push those companies away? I mean, one that comes to mind for me is the kind of technical data intellectual property area. I wonder about that one and then if there are other things you think um, DOD needs to look at to help these companies. Sure. Um, and it's not just DOD. I think all federal agencies need to do this. Uh, a lot of times when we talk about legacy in, in, in government, uh, folks talk about legacy systems, old systems, and you can't get newer people with smarter skills to come in and work on those systems. I've always viewed it, especially during my time in government, as legacy as a mindset, a legacy processes, um, the legacy way of thinking that I can only buy something a certain way, uh, I'm very comfortable in what I already have, so therefore if I put out a new contract or there's a potential new problem or a new set of capabilities I, I need to identify, I'd prefer to do it the way I'm comfortable. Um, so moving the government, and I think the Pentagon is better at this than, than most other places, moving uh, the 
acquisition professionals and the technology professionals away from a, a sort of focus on risk aversion and more towards opportunity enablement um, is something that is incredibly powerful. We'll get a lot more innovative companies in there. and We'll get a lot of these folks that already have products and services that the government needs into that space and into that vendor pool so, so the Pentagon can take advantage of, of all of the great technology that American companies have to offer. A lot of what we hear from Defense Primes is, you know, we can work with these innovative software companies and we can be sort of the gatekeepers since sure. we already have the processes and the compliance and all that. Sure. Um, is, that a, is that a tenable route or do you really think the companies need to be working directly with the Pentagon to get the full benefit for both sides? I think it's certainly more the latter. I mean, part of that legacy system mindset is that, you know, a lot of these folks, the systems integrators are there, they're comfortable, they know the folks inside, inside the Pentagon, they've worked with them forever. Um, I think a lot of these commercial companies, uh, a lot of their products and services are ready to be deployed right now, right? Innovation and readiness are not future concepts, they're current concepts, right? Like innovation is happening now and readiness is something that needs to be addressed immediately. Um, so the longer we wait to sort of move through the traditional way the government has bought and used technology, instead of pivoting towards uh, the way the commercial side uh, buys and uses technology to meet customer service needs and to, and to enable mission there, um, the, the slower things are going to be and, and the, we are not going to be achieving all of the outcomes that both Congress and the administration has set for, for DOD and for the civilian agencies. And um, with just about a minute to go, what else are you watching? Are there new strategies you're expecting or budgets or, or things that you think will come out that will try to um, address these problems? Sure. So um, I think there's, uh, there's going to be a lot of interest in seeing the sort of $1.3 plus trillion that Congress passed in December, how that's going to be spent over the next nine months. Um, I know things from an ADI perspective. Um, we want to focus more on watching uh, the Pentagon and watching civilian agencies just follow the law that's already there. Uh, we published a report uh, last year called Lost Opportunities, the Cost of Ignoring Commercial Innovation. And uh, when government agencies just follow the law, and we will remind them of this, uh, if they're following the Federal Acquisition Streamlining Act, um, they can embrace commercial innovation faster. They can get these capabilities uh, into government and get it to the mission owners who really need these products and services uh, to deliver on their mission. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now stay on top of all things that matter to the business of government anywhere, anytime. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join us weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Marjorie Sensor. The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data, presenting this message on cloud security. I'm Government Matters Director of Content George Jackson, here again with Sean Applegate, Chief Technology Officer at Swish, and Jeremy Castleman, Cloud Security Specialist at Checkpoint. Sean, you offer something called Infinity Total Protection. What does that involve? The Infinity Total Protection provides a per-user pricing model for end-to-end -end security fabric. And by this I mean your firewalls, your VPN, your IPS, but also your cloud security, your endpoint security, and your application security. What this provides is a very well-rounded uh, protective fabric 
that's got a single pane of glass, so it's easy to reduce your operating costs. For small to medium agencies, this is extremely valuable. It also means a predictable cost over a multi-year period, which often can save an agency 20 to 30% of their total cost investment in security. Wow. So talk about that nexus there, Jeremy, between security and operational value. What should our listeners know here? Well, as Sean mentioned, the ease of management's great, but it also provides you that full spectrum of the Checkpoint software portfolio. And this gives you a uniform security posture across your entire environment, and it keeps, we keep it up to date with the latest uh, Gen 5 advanced threat protection. Hmm. So what about endpoints, Sean? How does this affect or impact visibility? Yeah, at the endpoints where your users sit is often the first point of attack. Having the protective fabric, the sandboxing on a phone or an endpoint, allows this fabric to discover zero-day attacks extremely quickly in an endpoint sandbox, explode those devices, find those first-day attacks or zero-day attacks, feed them into a threat intelligence cloud, and then inform the rest of the fabric in near real-time. What this means is a small to medium agency can have an attack identified intelligently at the edge and then notified and updating the whole fabric as a community, so a much more proactive approach. Great info, Sean, Jeremy, thanks again for being here. For more, head to govmatters.tv slash swish. I'm Government Matters Director of Content, George Jackson. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.